Hello, everyone, and welcome to the seventh episode of Murder Monday on Late Night Crimecast. I'm your host, Robin Steffens, and every month on a random Monday, I will do a Murder Monday podcast in which I discuss psychopaths, serial killers, mass murderers, and more. And actually today, I'm going to be discussing a school shooter, one that's not often talked about. I mean, I feel like when we think of the most early school shootings, we think of the Columbine shootings. We think that, you know, they just started in the 1990s to now. But this school shooting actually took place over a decade before Columbine. Hell, it almost took place over two decades ago. And that's interesting in itself. But also, there's something even more interesting about this case, which is who actually committed the crime. Because the person I'm talking about today is not your typical school shooter. We're going to talk about someone who really falls outside of the traits that we expect to see in a school shooter. You know, those traits being white, male, likely with a history of violence or delinquency. The school shooter we're talking about today was just a 16-year-old girl at the time she committed her crimes. She was a thin girl, almost frail looking. She stood at just five foot two with freckles, bright red hair, and glasses. Brenda Ann Spencer took shots at an elementary school with a 22 caliber rifle where she would commit one of the most heinous crimes. I feel like there's always the argument of whether or not murderers are created or just born into the world. Like, was Ted Bundy just born sick in the head or was there some sort of domino effect? Some twisted turn of events that led to him being a murderer? In my opinion, I think it's a toss up. Some are already born with these tendencies and others, they're thrust into a reality so horrific during their formative years that it permanently affects them for the rest of their life. For this reason alone, I think it's important to talk about where these murderers started out and how they got to commit their crimes. For Brenda Ann Spencer, she was born on April 3, 1962 to her parents Dot and Wallace Spencer. She was the youngest of the children in her family at the time, and she had a pretty normal childhood, actually. To those who knew her growing up, she seemed to be a normal, happy child. She was a bit of a tomboy at the time, but she was active in several sports, she loved animals, and was a pretty talented photographer. I mean, there was nothing super out of the ordinary or worrisome about her until 1972. And around this time, her parents actually split up. It was a nasty split involving the courts, and it ended with her father being awarded full custody of all three children. Now... I'm going to guess that living with her father was extremely difficult, not only because of the situation itself, I mean, divorce is hard, but also the fact that they were living in poverty. It's reported that they would all sleep on a single mattress on the living room floor, and it's unsure if there was any further abuse in the home, but when the police checked the house after the shooting, It clearly wasn't in good condition. There were alcohol bottles everywhere just thrown about. And, you know, from that, we can kind of assume that 
things probably did go on in that house that could have possibly contributed to the situation. But anyways, after her parents split, people noted that she had become, and I quote, sullen, withdrawn, and strange. So much so that she seemed to make a 180. She started hanging out with a bad crowd. She talked about shooting police. And reportedly, she was engaged in delinquent behavior such as drugs, theft, cruelty to animals. And, you know, that change is so crazy to me. From her to go from an animal lover to an animal abuser, it's like a flip switched in her head. But that wasn't the only thing she was getting into. With all these new delinquent behaviors she was participating in, she also found a fascination with guns. Now, her dad was already into guns himself, but she really started to get interested in guns. And I think she kind of like started off with like BB guns, things like that. But then gradually, you know, started growing into using actual guns. And we'll get more into that later. But this is more than your normal teen rebellion. And things only got worse the older Brenda got. So Brenda stopped going to school as much, and as a result, she actually ended up having to go to a school for troubled students in early 1978. While she was there, she, of course, spoke with the staff who was just trying to, you know, get her better, get her to a better place in her life. And, you know, I guess during her stay there, they found out that Brenda was suicidal. So, you know, of course, they're alarmed and they inform her parents. But it seems as if her parents maybe didn't take it very seriously. And, you know, I have no idea how involved her mother was, but at least her father was not taking it seriously because, you know, Brenda soon became even more troubled and her father refused to get her help to possibly address these issues. So during the summer of that same year, Brenda was actually arrested for shooting out the windows of a school that she lived directly across the street from. This school was called Grover Cleveland Elementary. This was done with a BB gun at the time, but, you know, she still got her charges. And so she was charged with, you know, shooting out the windows. But on top of that, she also got a burglary charge thrown at her. So she went to court for this and she was given probation. So in December of 1978, she had a psychiatric evaluation. This was arranged by her probation officer, not her father. And, you know, her probation officer, he could see that this girl had some serious mental health issues going on, like she needed help. And, you know, he recommended that she be admitted to a mental hospital for depression. Now, this is the second time that someone is trying to get this girl some help, but her father, who had full custody of her, refused to give permission. He said that he could deal with the suicidal thoughts and the depression himself. Then, like any great father with a delinquent and depressed child would do, he bought her a gun. Her father bought her a semi-automatic 22 caliber rifle with a telescopic sight and 500 rounds of ammunition. Yes, you heard that right. He bought her a gun and ammunition. And if you're thinking that makes no sense, I mean, it makes no sense to me either. And even Brenda herself stated that she had asked for a radio and he just bought her a gun. And, you know, when asked about the intentions of her father buying the gun, 
she said that she felt that he wanted her to kill herself. So basically now everything is starting to make sense. I really don't know where the mom is in all of this. I mean, I don't really know exactly how divorce works. I'm lucky enough that my parents are still married to this day, but I'm pretty sure that when one parent gets full custody, that means that they can control when and where the other parent sees the child. So I'm unsure why the mom didn't get custody in the first place. I mean, she could have been just as bad as a parent or even worse. Um, but, you know, if not, to me, it makes no sense that her father was able to have such full custody of her when, you know, he showed so many signs that he just didn't care about her. I mean, they were already living in poverty. And I mean, that's really, it's something that could really not be the fault of someone in some cases. And so I get the stress of that. But if you see your child is going through a period of time where they are acting out, committing crimes, and you know, you're being told they're depressed, possibly suicidal, you know, by multiple people, like, you know, people that have talked to her, people that have been close to her in some capacity or another, you know, to the point where it's suggested that she go to, you know, get mental help with her mental health issues. And your response is to buy that child a gun and ammunition. You are not a good parent. Like there's just no way, shape or form that I could kind of like flip it to make it out that her father wasn't being negligent, you know? So, I mean, you know, there are so many people living in poverty that would literally do backflips for their child if they were screaming for help like this. And so with that being said, I want to kind of talk about the accusations that Brenda made about her father later on in her life. Um, and I want to talk about this later in the podcast, but I feel like it's really appropriate to do it now because, I mean, we're already on the topic of the horrible treatment she had from her father. So, you know, while at a hearing in 2001, Brenda stated that her father had physically and sexually abused her. And this is something that she never mentioned before. So of course, it came as a shock to everyone in the court. And of course, the parole board chairman said that he doubted whether the allegations were true. And rightfully so. I mean, it's been so long. And she's a murderer after all. It's a parole hearing. And, you know, she could just be making that up for her own freedom, you know, to, for the sake of basically saving herself. But then you kind of look at the other side of things where it's like, if she is a victim of anything, of abuse, physical or sexual, then, you know, you can't really blame her for coming out at a certain time, coming out later than what you wanted. It was like at her pace if she was a victim of abuse, you know? Um, but in my own opinion, it would make a lot of sense to me that she was being abused in some way, shape, or form while in the custody of her father. I mean, they lived in poverty, and after she was arrested, there was evidence of alcohol all over the home. Um, I mean, how would she get that alcohol if it was hers? She said that she was doing drugs and drinking at the time of the incident, but it was found that she actually had nothing in her system. So, I mean, those alcohol bottles had to belong to someone. And, you know, a situation like that with poverty, alcohol, it doesn't really breed positive behavior. It is completely possible that she was being abused 
and her behavior change coinciding with her being stuck with her father who may have been abusing her, it just doesn't seem like a coincidence. And of course, you can chalk it up to the divorce. You know, the divorce could have had an effect. Maybe her acting out was so that she could live with her mom. There are so many possibilities. But an alternative to that could be that she was just stuck with her abuser. And, you know, I really don't want to put the blame on anyone, like not even her father, regardless. I mean, she pulled the trigger. She made the choice. But I mean, her father was clearly negligent. He ignored her mental health. He ignored the signs. He kind of, in a way, encouraged this to happen by giving her the weapon to commit the crime, knowing the state of her mind. Um, I mean, you know, this is all my opinion, but I really just don't think that the extreme behavior was bought on by the divorce or, you know, just the divorce only. And this goes to the question of, you know, are people born with these tendencies or are they created? And I think from face value, Brenda, she seemed to have been created into this monster that she became. She was reported to be rather normal up until her parents' divorce. What happened during that time to make her personality completely change? What happened to, you know, lead her to this path where she murdered two people? When we look at statistics, I mean, childhood trauma is pretty high up there, you know, on what creates a killer, a murderer, a serial killer, things like that. So, you know, that's my theory. I mean, I'm just telling you my theory on what could have triggered this event. But I mean, we'll never know because she never actually gave a solid reason on why. I'm going to circle back to this for a little bit. I mean, I pretty much got everything I wanted to say out, but I want to come back around to this topic later. Um, but, you know, let's let's just get into the shooting right now. So another thing about this shooting is that it was different from other school shootings because the shooter actually never entered the school. It was only a little over a month after Brenda received that Christmas gift from her father that she committed this act. On Monday, January 29th, 1979, in the early morning, Brenda began shooting from her home at children who were waiting outside Grove Cleveland Elementary School. You know, this is the school that she lived right across the street from. So for the children, it would have been a normal morning. Each day, the students would walk to school or get dropped off by their parents. Then they would go and wait at the school gates for their principal, Burton Rag, to open the gates. Instead, they were met with brutality and the unmistakable sound of gunfire. It appears that Brenda was not really targeting anyone. She was just shooting whoever she could, children and adults. Upon seeing what was happening, the principal actually attempted to help the children escape. He unfortunately was shot and killed while trying to help them. Then the custodian of the school saw what was happening. He saw that the principal had gotten shot. He tried to come to the rescue and pull the principal to safety, but he too was shot and killed while trying to save lives. His name was Mike Sukar. At this point, there was just chaos. Children were fleeing on foot, you know, shots were going off, you know, kids were trying to get to safety as best as they can. And, you know, soon after, the first police started to show up. And among those police, an officer responding to the incident was shot in the neck, actually, as he arrived. He ended up surviving. 
Eight children were injured as well. They all survived. And she was only stopped because police were able to put a garbage truck in front of her house and clear the area. Brenda had only fired 30 rounds of ammunition before she barricaded herself inside her home for seven hours. Then she had a standoff with the police. During this time, she had a telephone conversation with a journalist who was searching for a reason, for a why to this horrible crime. And you know what Brenda's response was? I don't like Mondays. This livens up the day. First of all, so many thoughts. Like, what? I'm here to remind you that this is a teenage girl that just murdered two people and injured many more. She just, you know, she spoke as if she had no remorse and no regrets. And that blows my mind. She also spoke with police negotiators during this time. And she was basically doing more of the same. She was just saying things to make it seem like she had no remorse, no regret. Almost trying to provoke the police. And I mean, with the things she was saying, I could believe that she was suicidal. She was saying things like the people she shot had made easy targets and that she was going to come out shooting if they forced her to come out of her house. And, you know, at this point, I think that she probably did want to die, but she unfortunately didn't get her wish. It didn't get to that. And she ended up surrendering. After this shooting, Brenda was taken into custody and through the system. Because of the severity of her crimes and clearly the comments that she had made, it was clear that she had no remorse. And I often feel like the courts go harder on you if you do show no remorse. So, you know, Brenda was sentenced as an adult. She pled guilty to two counts of murder and assault with a deadly weapon. On April 4th, 1980, a day after her 18th birthday, she was sentenced to 25 years to life. While in prison, she was finally given medication to deal with her depression. And after some tests, it was found that she actually had injury to the temporal lobe of her brain, which attributed to an incident on her bicycle. And, you know, this is kind of me getting back to that earlier conversation of what could have caused her to commit this crime. I feel like head injuries are actually another commonality that murderers have. So I thought it would just be interesting, you know, just to bring it up, just to throw in there, because it's seriously a mystery why she really did this. I mean, I hate Mondays too, never enough to hurt someone else. So, you know, it's, it's a huge mystery, like what actually provoked her to commit this crime. But anyway, back to her imprisonment. She became eligible for parole in 1993. At her first hearing, she stated that she had hoped police would shoot her and that she had been a user of alcohol and drugs at the time of the crime, which was interesting for her to say because it was actually found when she was taken into custody that, you know, she didn't have any drugs or alcohol in her system. All those tests came back negative. So she wasn't actually using 
And that's also why I mentioned earlier why I think that, you know, that was probably just the normal state of her home and that, you know, it was probably her dad's alcohol. That's what I think personally. But, you know, regardless, she did this sober. She was completely sober. She wasn't under the influence. You know, you can't blame drugs for something like this regardless, but like she was completely sober. So in 1993, she applied for a parole, was denied. Um, then in her 2001 hearing, she made the abuse claims about her father denied again because, you know, like I said before, they didn't really believe her. Um, then in 2005, she was deemed psychotic and unfit to be released because of uh, self-harm, I guess, attempted suicide. And then, you know, by 2015, she was unsuccessful again at all four parole board hearings that she had. And as of April 2020, she remains in prison at the California Institution for Women. Okay, guys, that's going to be it for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this Murder Monday. I found it really interesting. I would definitely do some research on this topic if you're interested in it as well. It's really intriguing to me. She's still in prison today and, you know, there's still articles out there of her, you know, trying to get out of prison. I honestly don't think she should be let out, but, you know, I guess we'll see how that, you know, goes over the years. Um, but yeah, that's going to be all for this week. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I hope you guys are all healthy, happy, and safe. Um, if you guys can, please leave a review for this podcast. And I will see you guys on Thursday. Thank you so much again for listening. And that's all for tonight. Bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.